So, welcome back to episode one, part two of On the Horizon with Glenn and Henry. Glenn, have you got your cup of tea sorted? Yep, got it here, Henry. Well done. Yes, I feel a lot better now. In part two, we're going to have a deeper look at anthracnose, fairy rings, and annual medigras seed head production. But let's start with anthracnose. Although we've already said that we're not expecting a huge amount of anthracnose disease activity at this time of year, it certainly is a time when we should be thinking about preventing its development later on. Yeah, spot on, Henry. Uh, It is the month where all the stresses start. We see cold temperatures, we see really high temperatures, we see some extremes of light, getting some very long days now in May. In fact, it really is suboptimal conditions for growth. We're pushing that plant incredibly hard because the customer is demanding an excellent putting surface and we want to deliver. There's just a lot of things going on in this month that's going to stress that plant out. Yes, and that push to create playing qualities in the face of potentially suboptimal conditions can lead to turf stress building to greatly increase the risk of a disease like anthracnose developing later on. And so we should have that in the front of our minds when proceeding through May. Before we go too far into this subject, Henry, I'd like to congratulate you and Dr. Andy Owen for that fantastic piece of education you did last year, which you can find on YouTube. I learned a lot from that about anthracnose. And if anyone has anthracnose challenges on their golf course, we're going to do a bit on it here and kind of cover some of the stuff that I learned in those sessions. I really suggest you go and take a look at that. Um, on the ICL YouTube channel because it is it was an excellent piece of work, Henry. Thanks, Glenn. Um, I'll pay you later. Uh, no, we did receive a lot of good feedback from those, and they might be worth a, another look. We, you know, we, a refresh is always a good idea. But even at the time when they were released, we we felt that we were actually talking about it too late. They were released at the time when people were experiencing anthracnose disease activity during the summer, and so they were helpful, obviously, for to a certain degree. But they definitely missed the opportunity for us to fully emphasise like we are now, the importance of preventative strategies earlier on in the year, you know, to prevent it from happening in the first place or uh, help alleviate the risk of attack well beforehand. So hopefully this year uh, we're getting anthracnose disease on the radar a little bit earlier to help greenkeepers prevent it. But certainly the videos are still worth a look and uh, we'll be able to cover the subject in more detail than we are today. Yeah, a lot of my understanding about anthracnose was really challenged the reforms during those video sessions, Henry. So thanks for putting that together. Um, it was excellent and probably more relevant now than it was when you released it. That period of the year, you're absolutely right. When you're seeing it, the horse has bolted. This May period is where we can put some changes and some strategies in place to avoid it. 
So it's, if it's a subject of interest for you, make sure you go and take a look, right? So when we're talking about anthracnose today, Henry, are we going to be talking about foliar blight or basal rot anthracnose? Ah, good question. So uh, the type of anthracnose developing in May would be very much dependent on conditions. I suppose uh, we would see basal rot if conditions were wet and there was some carryover in the sward from autumn and winter and conditions were suitable. And But foliar blight, on the other hand, would be more characteristic of, you know, hot and humid summer conditions. And so... Again, we wouldn't normally expect to see it in May, but again, as we mentioned, you know, we can get those high extremes of temperature uh, during this time, especially down south for you, Glenn. So both types could occur, but it would be uh, unusual conditions driving it. Okay, so if we see that foliar blight anthracnose earlier in the season... Can that evolve into basal rot anthracnose? Can the two, are they different diseases? Do they, one evolve into the other? How does that work? Well, yeah, I and mean, we'll probably talk about that eventuality later on in the year. But it, yeah, it could do, Glenn. Um, the pathogen is the same. Uh, and so if there was inoculum carryover uh, in, affected organic, in infected organic matter and the host was susceptible and the conditions were suitable, then that could be the case. And it might be something that we, we will discuss at a later date, but it, it is very much dependent on environmental conditions and, of course, golf course management intensity. So I'm going to come back to this anthracnose, basal rot and foliar blight. And how do the two manifest themselves differently? Why have they got different names why isn't it just anthracnose? Uh, it's just to confuse everyone, Glenn. No, okay. um, it's the location of the activity, depending on conditions, that gives rise to the different symptoms and hence the different names. The basal rot, as the name suggests, is uh, where the focus of the pathogenic activity is at the, the, the base of the plant and uh, it effectively rots it away. And, and this results in the plant not being able to function properly and the leaves gradually die back, becoming that characteristic yellow color. And you can pinch out those plants from the sward and look at the stem base and see, and see the black rotting base affected by the disease. But, you know, so that's the basal rot. On the other hand, you've got the foliar blight and that it, with different conditions affects the foliage or the leaves of the plant. And again, it does turn um, the plant that sort of characteristic bright yellow color. But you, you, at that time, you, you, you know, you're not the activities focus very much in the canopy rather than the stem base. Hence the different name. And yeah, from my experience, I've seen it kind of yellow and sometimes it manifests itself in a grey kind of manner. It's kind of dry patch looking type disease. Yeah, well, this is the point, Glenn, you know, with, especially with regard to, uh, uh, to foliar blight, because I can say that I've seen rather a lot of basal rot in my agronomic career uh, in the north of England. But I think I can say that I've only seen anthracnose foliar blight in the field on a handful of occasions. 
So it's not really something that I'm that familiar with, uh, it's, which is probably due to the, the temperatures that we, we, we generally experience up here. It would have to be sort of quite unusual weather for us to get it in the north of England and even more so further north. Foliar blight will be, will be sort of way more common, I think, down in the south of England with you, uh, where summer temperatures are commonly higher last year being an example and uh we move with temperatures moving into the high 20s or low 30s on a regular basis yeah that's a really interesting point because it's definitely becoming more prolific around here um down on the south coast and particularly more around the kind of london m25 belt those london type golfing venues i'm not sure whether that's climate related or whether it's the expectations that are now being placed on those more affluent clubs whether they're just moving themselves into a pattern of pushing surfaces harder and harder to create better putting surfaces year round or if it's more the climate and the additional heat we get in that area or whether it's a combination of climate and increased maintenance. Just, I'm not totally sure, but it's definitely on the increase down this area. Yeah, well, this is the point that we want to make about anthracnose, I suppose, that it's this, that its occurrence is certainly stress-related, and some of those stresses might be climatic, uh, but th- some of them are being imparted by the the course manager. I think it's... True to say that more often than not, that, it, that it's a man-made disease being brought on where the management intensity is exceeding the capabilities of the plant in really simple terms. And that if the management intensity could be adjusted slightly to alleviate that sort of management stress when environmental stresses might be peaking, then the um, the risk of a severe attack might be greatly reduced. I know that this is this is typical, isn't it, of what of what an agronomist would say. But anthracnose can be an extremely damaging disease if it's allowed to develop. And so we should have this discussion and take this possible cause seriously and and consider all options in terms of you know trying to minimize the impact of 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 a disease like anthracnose yeah i think the big challenge with anthracnose is once it's on you you can't get to grips with it quickly it feels like it's too late and the damage is done Um, fungicides and chemicals at that stage when you have it just aren't enough to deal with it once it's there, you can certainly ring fence all the healthy plants to a, an extent at that point. But once it's on you, it's really tricky to manage. It's it's all about prevention. We need to deal with this before we see it. And when we're trying to achieve control, we want, you know, we have to recognize it's very slow to manifest itself. And most people I talk to feel it festers away once it's got past that certain point. So, We've got to come back to this prevention is a far better strategy than curative is. Yeah, it used to be called like the greenkeeper's friend, didn't it, as a disease? And it's kind of like, I just think maybe with the sort of management intensity or the, the extremes of, of, of weather, it's, it's, it is no way 
in no way beneficial and we do, and we do need to take it very seriously and planning is the key really there, there 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 is some really good research on this disease that was that was carried out in the states that we that we both me and you Glenn are routinely reference on this topic from um uh, I think it was Murphy Hempfling Clark and others and their work clearly showed the influence that management strategy can have on the development of this disease um the first one was the nutritional approach is, is so important, in particular, the sort of nitrogen fertility. During the period of disease activity, getting the nutrition right can have an extremely strong and powerful influence on reducing the development of disease. Too little nitrogen was a big influencing factor, and it got way more anthracnose. And the research sort of showed that applying between two and five kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per week as an average should be applied during those high risk periods. Um, when we've talked about this research, we, we're kind of like always a take a gulp at that stage because in um, UK conditions we're happy to recommend the lower end of the scale for golf green maintenance during the summer depending on the situation but that five kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per week average does seem a little bit high for our tastes. Glenn what do you think? Yeah I can see some obvious traps here and I can see why people fall into this kind of negative anthracnose loop uh, that feels right to me in a research-based trial. I conceive that I would definitely have lower levels of anthracnose if I used those levels of nitrogen than I would if I used really low levels of nitrogen. And I can see why a lot of people fall into the trap of using low nitrogen. Um, there's a real increasing push from what I can see to reduce nitrogen use, less and less and less, in order to come up with put faster putting surfaces. And... It's being used as a tool to manage quicker surfaces. And there were times that I fell into that trap as well. So I can see where it all stems from. Uh, I buy into the research. I just worry that expectations and what the guys are doing. I just worry the two don't connect. Yeah, yeah. There's this, there's this mismatch, isn't there, between the agronomics and the expectations. Um, and this isn't about selling fertilizer, is it? For goodness sake, this is just about getting the agronom, setting the right agronomic conditions in place to manage a potentially serious you know, occurrence. But keeping the um, putting surfaces too lean can certainly increase the risk of anthracnose attack. But as always, you know, we should just be simply trying to strike the right balance. And so greenkeepers and course managers might just firstly just know how much nitrogen they're delivering on average on a weekly basis during these high risk periods and then maybe decide whether it's enough for the plant to be able to withstand the intensity of the maintenance that's being imposed on it or if uh, background stress levels are rising then maybe an adjustment towards a slightly higher level of nitrogen might be beneficial at certain times just to help out the plants um, i think essentially we need to avoid dogmatic programming and just be a bit more flexible and just be reacting to conditions as they emerge over that horizon look we just want to maintain plant health enough to be able to reduce the risk of anthracnose developing we're not looking to 
pile loads of fertilizer on golf greens no i don't think we are but i'm going to try and take this back to a really practical point of view now henry so people have got some useful things they can take away from this so if we think about that research and that two to five kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per week is that during the growing season is it just during the period of your stress what are your thoughts on that two to five what should people be really putting in place? Mm. Well, we spend quite a lot of time thinking about this and use this whole kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per week as as our sort of benchmark figures, really. Um, uh, internally, we have lots of discussion on what our target level should be. So generally, again, our ICL sort of advisory team or area managers who are all fully qualified and experienced turf professionals, I should say, we generally aim to recommend between two and three kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per week for golf green fertility programs uh, during the summer months. We were sort of in that territory. In my mind, I've got sort of two kilograms per hectare per week of nitrogen as a sort of benchmark figure but we would only really go up to that sort of higher level of five kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per week for specific maintenance events such as generating quick recovery from top dressing etc so so that really wouldn't be the norm so look we're, we're sort of in the the right area and we're not going to be applying fertilizer with our eyes closed i just i just I just think actually it is a useful way of looking at, at nutritional inputs, this kind of units per week, especially during this time. And yeah, I do think a greater level of flexibility might be built into fertility programs or uh, an appreciation that at certain times slight increases upon those routine levels could be beneficial, especially in situations where courses have experienced extreme anthracnose events in the past. Just upping the, the nutrition on the run-up to that sort of known danger period would seem to be like a, a common-sense approach. We're, we're not advocating, you know, huge and significant increases in nitrogen through the course of the year. We're looking to phase the delivery of that nitrogen for particular reasons. Okay, so that's 8 to 12 units of N, roughly, per growing month. And that's what the UK ICL team are generally looking to recommend. But the research is saying that we would benefit when we're looking to counter anthracnose from going even higher. So I can see the traps there because that kind of 8 to 12 units per month, some course managers might scoff at that and think that's quite high. Yet the research is showing we need to be higher than that in order to negate this anthracnose pressure. So I can really see the pressures, but it's very dependent on each situation as well, isn't it? So if I go back to the last golf course I managed, we had five sand-based greens that had all been constructed during various periods through the late 80s and the mid-90s, all of varying degrees of quality root zone. And the rest of my greens were all soil push-ups with several years of sand top dressing over them, but they were very different greens. They needed very different management styles and programs but i always struggled with anfracnose on those sand brace greens but they got more nutrition than the soil based greens so one figure isn't the same across all golf courses and it's not the same across one golf course 
No, no, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, now, do you think that um, those sand-based greens received enough nutrition, even though they were receiving more uh, or, or than the rest of the greens? Or do you think that there was another factor influencing the situation that would lead to an increased level of anthracnose on those newer greens? You know, was it moisture stress or something else that was driving the attack? on those newer constructions? Um, oh, I suspect looking back now that my fertility program was out, you know, in an ideal world, I would have managed those five greens completely different to the rest of the golf course. But we were a fairly small team. We were limited with our resources. And all I did was add, simply add a controlled release fertilizer to those five greens at the beginning of the year and then used exactly the same maintenance program across the whole 18 holes through the rest of the season. I suspect my nutrition just wasn't enough during those summer months. My nutrition was bulked out on those surfaces in the early part of the season because um, they were always slower to take off as well. And I kind of wanted to match them up. So I worked really hard in the spring and added this additional fertilizer to them. Um, and I felt that extra nutrition in the controlled release method would keep me on top of things for the season. And the strategy generally worked out pretty well for me, Henry. Um, as I kind of went into the season, things were looking good. I didn't really have the labour or the labour was felt like the labour was better spent in other areas. Um, I certainly didn't split the, the programmes out between the two surfaces. But I, I look back now and I think I realised that controlled release fertiliser ran out sooner than I thought. And when that happened, I think I tried to lean the other surfaces back to those to match those greens rather than lift them up to the same level as everything else. The members members loved them. Once they leaned right off, Henry, and they were lean and they were thin, they were still great putting surfaces and they were quicker. And I was just working everything else as hard to harder to meet the same speeds as they were. When I saw that Anfracnos coming in kind of August – that was when I struggled to get back on top of it. It was gone. I couldn't do anything with it. And it just kind of festered on for the rest of the year. Now, every year we got a little bit better at managing it, but I never got on top of it. Yeah. And so it might have been that sort of just topping up that nutrition you know, during the season, maybe during May, uh, would have sort of got them through a little bit. But, the, but, you know, it's easy to look back, isn't it? Um, but, you know, hopefully when we do look back, we learn. But the practicalities of maintenance programs uh, they're always really interesting, aren't they? You know, um, as an agronomist, it's very easy for me to recommend fancy programs, but the realities of sort of delivering them on a day-to-day -day basis are very different. You know, the demands of running split maintenance programs are huge, especially when, you know, when the sort of main part of the season is upon you. And, you know, I, and I can also understand you not wanting to overcomplicate things by treating those greens differently during in the main playing season and also most people's nutrition program during the summer months are liquid based so it would be quite difficult to apply significantly more to those greens but you know maybe the use of other technologies if we're going to talk about it might have provided a more practical op option for instance 
you know, a single application of the slow release granular to those greens, you know, during May might have done the trick uh, in terms of sustaining turf health um, in a better way without causing any deterioration in playing qualities or any complications or disruptions to your sort of maintenance routines. You know, we do a product called Sierra Form GTK Step, which is an ultra fine grade of 6027 fertilizer that can be applied, you know, at low rates that is perfectly able to deliver maybe an extra two to three kilograms of nitrogen per week over a, you know, four week period that, you know, to get you through that pinch period. Something like that might have done the trick. So, yes, you know, we do need to apply the right level of nutrition before and during the period of stress to sustain turf health without creating flushes of growth or slowing the surfaces down. And it might have just got them through. Yeah. Um, and and it's, I suppose it's this kind of technology advice that, you know, that, that's our job, Glenn, isn't it? And our, and, and our area managers that, that we're able to give because course managers, they won't know the intricate details of, of product ranges, will they? Or individual products. Um, but there certainly are technologies out there that might be useful in those situations. And that's something that we can bring to the table without being commercial about it. You know, I've just recommended a really low rate of application to five golf greens. So I don't think we're going to make a huge amount of money out of that recommendation, Glenn. But look, this whole issue of having different construction types on 18-hole golf course is really common in the UK, especially. And these problems, you know, uh, you know, are extremely common for everyone. Hindsight's a wonderful thing. Um, I recognise now I was probably pushing those ones too hard, but they were minority on the golf course, Henry. And, and I guess that was my strategy um, to push those ones a bit harder and let the other ones sit in their comfort zone. Uh, I wonder now if I could have made my life a bit easier and just planned a preventative fungicide in if I wanted to maintain that strategy and kind of got a preventative fungicide in there on those five greens wouldn't have been a big cost or just simply up the nutrition so if i wanted to stick with the existing fertility strategy kind of put some fungicide strategy in or if i didn't want to go that route go down the fertility strategy but i probably needed to make an adjustment yes absolutely yeah because that is you know, the other thing that you could have done differently, isn't it, um, is that you could have accepted that there was, you know, a greater risk of anthracnose developing based on your experience for those greens during that time and also protected them with a preventative fungicide application. Part of the problem here is that there's always too many things to think about. And especially if you're managing a golf course during the summer and the horizon is not always in clear view. Yeah, I was convinced each year I'd solve the problem. I didn't need to turn to a product and a bottle to solve it, though. Um, if all of my 18 greens had been the same construction method, then wholesale changes to my practice would have worked really well um, or certainly could have improved my situation. But because those greens were in the minority, I always felt like the additional maintenance they needed was just something that slipped down my priority list. Yeah. And again, the ability to look onto the horizon and think four to five weeks ahead to plan for that fungicide, possibly, 
it's difficult when you're trying to manage a busy 18-hole golf course with all the demands that are being placed on you, especially at this crucial time of year. Indeed. So one of the other things I took out of you, your and Andy's presentation was cutting heights. And there was some really good research in there on the benefits of lifting those cutting heights. Yes. I mean, you've already talked about, you know, the need to push the greens hard during this time in order to create those excellent and enjoyable playing qualities for the golfers and this is the other way in which we push our greens more than we we ever used to um i suppose the last 15 years has seen an increase in the intensity of greens maintenance and the, it might just simply be this that is accounting for that rise and rise of summer anthrax nose. You know, the continual and relentless pressure from mowing. And it is a difficult one to reconcile because we know, you know, it's our job to create those wonderful playing surfaces. And intensive mowing in terms of low cutting heights is a way that we can achieve that. Um, and sometimes our hands are tied, Glenn, aren't they? You know, it, um, lowering the height of cut is not always a vanity from the course manager or a thoughtless thing to do just in blind search of green speeds. Sometimes it's something that you have to do just to sort of create playing surfaces. But the research says that certainly low cutting heights will have a – or or easing the cutting heights will have a direct impact on the severity of the disease. The, the, the lower that you go, they found the more anthracnose you've got. Yeah, you and me have chatted about this quite a lot behind the scenes, Henry. Um, if I go back again to the last course I managed, we had we had quite a lot of brown top bents in our soil-based greens, and I was constantly trying to get more bents in there as that's kind of a inbuilt greenkeeping mission that I think I'd grown up with. I'd, grown up on the in the aftermath of Jim Arthur and read all his comments and I had the desire to be that good greenkeeper and I was taught at college that that was aspirational and and I saw the quantity of fine grasses in my greens as a kind of a metric for success I think um the challenge I had was managing a putting surface that my members were happy when I had those two different types of grass so I was kind of driving towards this goal and at the same time, it was actually making my job a bit harder. Um, they had very different growth habits, and particularly in this month we're talking about, May was really difficult. I found it to be more difficult during May than any other period of the year. May would inevitably involve lots of brushing, lowering cutting heights, whatever I could do to create a decent putting surface when we had those two different species really growing at very different rates. So my cutting height, which is generally, we generally lowered it through that period just to get smoother surfaces. And I was doing it to get smoother surfaces rather than faster surfaces. And I get really frustrated when I hear people talking about smooth surfaces being more important than speed, because for me, they were very much connected. The faster the surface was, the smoother it was. Um, on the site that I was managing, I just couldn't manage greens at that golf course at eight and a half foot that were smooth. 
the difference in grass growth patterns were just too wide. They were quite uneven. So as you sped them up, as that pace increased, they got smoother and smoother and smoother. And the members loved them, you know. And if I could have kept those smooth surfaces at a slower speed and a better cutting height, I probably would have done that. But uh, you just couldn't separate the two out. So May became a really stressful period for me because I knew I was pushing the surfaces harder than I wanted to. I think even then I was underestimating it and looking back, I was harder than I realised. And I wanted to do that to get those surfaces because I wanted to please my membership. We're in May after all. We are in peak golfing season. We had lots of club competitions going on in May and I was just I was driving it too hard. Yeah, yeah, but your hands were tied, Glenn, you know, by the grass types uh, primarily that were in the greens, you know, which is also a really important point that goes along the, the sort of issue with different construction types is that this is really common, um, that mixed swords are the norm for a lot of course managers. And, you know, having different grass types in the greens, you know, can force your maintenance to be taken into an area of lower cutting heights just to, you know, create surfaces that are just, you know, reasonable, but then increases the risk of attack later on. So, you know, my earliest statements of saying that anthracnose could be man-made is a bit too simplistic because although undoubtedly it is. It doesn't necessarily mean that people are being stupid or that, um, you know, there's, you know, willful um, negligence going on, you know, because our hands are tied. And I suppose it means that, we're, you know, we, if we simply try and do our best with nutrition and try not to be too fixed and we appreciate the damage that overly aggressive heights of cut can do and, and adjust them slightly, then we might just be in a better place. You know, if we go back to that American research, which was all linked together, you know, the sort of best management practice, you know, there was a final ingredient, Glenn, and that was that top dressing was one of those management factors that also influenced the development of anthracnose. In, in their particular study, it showed that 80 tonnes of top dressing applied per hectare per year was found to result in less disease um, than if 40 tonnes was applied in that year. Um, and this is good, really, because it shows that, you know, we can work to create fast smooth as you say and true surfaces um because we've got you know top dressing on our side you're right glenn you know we measure the speed of a green using a stint meter which is essentially um equating the speed of the surface with the distance a ball rolls from a standard delivery and of course if you smooth the surface out the ball will roll further. So there is that direct relationship with smoothness and speed. And and top dressing is the way in which we is one of the ways in which we can really start focusing on, you know, working that smoothness. And it, and it, again, this is stuff that, that that's done routinely. We you know, top dressing and regular top dressings is 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 you know very common now and and there's you know there's you know if we're talking about smoothness there are other beneficial supporting technologies you know we've got turf irons in our favor they they were found in the study not to influence the level of anthracnose and of course plant growth regulators which were also neutral in terms of their impact with the development of anthracnose and all these things top dressing plant growth regulators turf irons 
you know, getting the nutrition right. They can all have a massive influence on the playing qualities to maybe allow allow the emphasis to be slightly taken off the uh, off the mowing. We're just trying to prepare really good surfaces in a in as considerate a way as possible, aren't we? But I know there's practicalities in the way. Yeah, you mentioned there the regular light dressings, and I I've seen I've read the research, and I saw your on Andy's presentation. And it does support lower levels of anthracnose when light top dressing programs are in place. Why do you think that sand top dressing is reducing the level of pressure? Have you got any thoughts there? I don't know, really. It, it, I don't think it was explained, but it might be something as simple as uh, the dressing protecting the crown of the plant or the sort of amendment of the very turf base to make it less moisture retentive. I don't know, really. Uh, what do you think? Well, I've got a gut feeling, and I, I, I think you're right on that crown protection. I think that crown is the critical growing point of the plant. And particularly when we're lowering cutting heights, we're getting closer and closer to that crown. I just think and feel that that regular top dressing kind of protects that crown of the plant, buries it. Without that regular top dressing, you can sit in a kind of spongy layer at the surface and effectively your cutting at heights are much lower because that kind of spongier area gets compressed every time you run a machine over it. And that can be exaggerated in wet conditions or soft conditions. And I think without that regular top dressing, there's much more opportunity on those periods of a bit more rainfall than maybe you should be mowing in to scalp a little bit or run a little bit tighter than you think you are. I've just got mixed kind of philosophies and opinions or thoughts or even feelings on Sam top dressing. I I was really lucky and I got to work in the States before um, for a couple of years when I was younger and that was kind of early noughties. And there was a very much a philosophy through that period over there that regular top dressing led to anthracnose due to the abrasive nature of it. Um, but there seems to have been a big change in mentality and understanding on that. And these light dressings are maybe making things slightly better. So I'm not sure where I am on that argument, but the research certainly supports lighter dressings. Maybe it's just as simple as an improvement in the technology we've got now. My brush technology has moved on massively in the last 20 years since I was out there. Um, I remember dragging things in with a metal old drag mat and a freewheel Cushman that left wheel spins whenever you turn too tightly in the corners. And you tried to be as careful as you could, but there was always a time where you wanted to get back in for lunch as quick as possible and you you went a bit faster. Um, and we've also seen a big step forward in top dressers as well. So, so we've got spin top dressers now. I'm sure we were using a band top dresser, so dressings would have been much heavier. I guess it just shows how we've moved on and technology is always advancing. Yeah, it's 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 in my time in the industry, it's it's just seen so much progress. It's brilliant, really. We are so progressive, and there, you know, we've got lots and lots of um, you know significant and effective methods and technologies available to us to help achieve those amazing surface. And I think generally, again. Uh, wearing my badge of the agronomist, uh, sorry, the agronomist fraternity, we've always tried to advocate uh, the production of fast, 
smooth and true putting surfaces at you know the highest possible height of cut but that's not to say that we want slow surfaces we all know what we've got to do but it's just doing it in a more three-dimensional way rather than just overly relying on height of cut or doing everything else but still deploying you know those those mowing pressures because it sort of adds that extra edge you know that that sort of need for more speed and um you know if we can just satisfy and delight the players in a way that doesn't have long-term negative impacts um then that will be good you know like you know top dressing growth regulators rolling but you know i've already mentioned there are implications in terms of resourcing and capability so it's really easy to say you know these kind of this alternative that i'm suggesting um which is you know which is carried out to a large degree across the country i would say these days is more intensive and it might be out of reach for some courses or it might be out of reach at certain times when golf courses are busy um but you know this anthracnose is a true agronomic indicator and it might just be saying especially during this kind of may period when the root of the disease um, might be beginning that we are pushing our greens so hard yeah this has been a really useful conversation for me henry because i'm looking at it now and just thinking if you are one of those golf clubs out there that's relying on low nutrition um, to maintain a surface that your members required and you're also relying on low cutting heights you're possibly neglecting your top dressing program it's highly likely you're going to stumble into some of these anthracnose problems, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it is one of those diseases that is so dependent on the overall balance of pressures that, um, you know, it is in the hands of the course manager. And 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 you know, we do need to try to... To, to really read those pressures and balance them out and, uh, you know, try, try not to push too hard at times. Or if we are having to push hard because that's the reality of the situation, then to make sure we use those supporting technologies that, that might help to mitigate the risk. Yeah, I think that's right. We should definitely not be relying on those low cutting heights those kind of super lean surfaces to achieve the putting surfaces that so many people are chasing. It doesn't matter how many supporting technologies and fungicide programs we throw in, we're still going to move into that danger area if we're putting those things in place. But we can reduce the pressure by using the supporting technologies. So I would definitely highly recommend you review all of those practices, all of those cultural practices, because that is the foundation for this. If you're having to do those things to create those surfaces that you need at your club, get those right before we start thinking about technologies. But let's be honest here, people are pushing surfaces and they are stepping close to that edge all the time. So what are these supporting technologies we keep talking about that people can adopt to keep them the right side of the line, Henry? Good question. In terms of stress mitigation, I suppose a good start would be a good surfactant stroke moisture management strategy is essential. You know, areas under drought stress or that are beginning to be affected by localized hydrophobicity uh, will be the first to suffer under the 
intensity of maintenance that is you know commonly in place at this time of year so that needs to be in place moisture management and and monitoring as well you know i i myself would certainly be recommending the use of Prima Max 2, as it is, because we know that we've got that it's got stress mitigation capabilities as well as its turf quality benefits. But there's also some new things for Syngenta, isn't there? And the, 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 some technologies that really can help in this area. And the first one that is, which I'm a big advocate of, and I never thought I would be, would be the Turf Pigment Rider that was released a couple of years ago. And Glenn, both me and you worked on this from its launch with some trial work of our own, and we both became big fans of it, didn't we? How does Rider, a Turf Pigment, fit into the whole stress management strategy for you? We touched on this a little bit earlier when we were talking about light, Henry, and these in during these stress periods, we've got all of these different stress is going on light is always the final trigger we probably haven't recognized that as much as we should have done in the past if we kind of get dry droughty root zones you notice the plant won't start wilting until the light levels get high enough to do that secondary damage um so you'll regularly see wilting turf in the afternoon now those moisture contents haven't changed much from the morning but what's happened is the light levels have got high enough to stress that plant out a little bit further. And Ryder does a really good job of reducing the amount of UV light and those high light levels reaching the plant. That by itself is a big stress that is reduced or even eliminated from the long list of stresses we have in May. And, and I'm always amazed with the results it comes up with and really surprised by how it even reduces that wilt that you see on those dry swords. Um, there's a slight danger when we're talking about anthracnose that the additional colour can kid you into thinking you don't need the same levels of nutrition. And I think that's a trap some people could fall into if they're not careful. Um, but you combine it with a good nutrition program. And I think there are real benefits in this pigment technology during the spring and summer period. Absolutely. Absolutely. I did a trial last year, actually, uh, that although it wasn't about riser, there were a couple of treatment schedules in there that were with and without rider in it. And it was quite a stress trial there. It was under nutrient stress. And there was also some drought stress in there at the start of the trial. And those plots that had received rider were always way, way better than those that hadn't but had received you know everything else exactly the same and that was through the whole course of the trial and it it just confirmed my view that you know as a product it really does have beneficial properties that that do go way beyond that pigmentation effect or that color response uh, which is also great in fairness and you know it's certainly a, a, a a it's certainly a technology that I would be deploying, and um, no one is more surprised than me that I'm such a strong advocate. It's just a good management tool, but we do need to be mindful of of that tricking effect of the color response and not get fooled into keeping the greens too lean. And so, even with this technology, we still need to be a little bit careful. Yeah, I'd completely agree with that thing. Now, the other technology that is very much focused in this stress mitigation area uh, is one that Syngenta have moved into. And we don't sort of want to make this a sales pitch, but amino acids are interesting. And 
Uh, we have the new product, High Cure, this season, which is based on you know highly concentrated amino acids, uh, and that's all about helping to maintain plant health during stress. Glenn, you've seen the research, and you know you're probably more familiar than, than me on this kind of technology. What do you think? Uh, amino acids are proving to be a very interesting way to manage some of these stresses. Whenever the plant is operating and functioning properly and without stresses, it's really capable of producing its own amino acids. Henry can do that fine. But the moment it starts coming under stress, then the way the plant physiology works is it has potential to start breaking down its own proteins to recreate some amino acids that it needs. So that's kind of a bit of the basic science behind it. But we're seeing when we target these amino acids to this stress period, when when things are starting to go a little bit wrong for the plant and it's not functioning properly, we can start to see some real nice benefits of those amino acids to the surface. Now, all of these technologies that we're talking about, Henry, are really interesting and really useful. But I think it's only fair to say they're all marginal gains. Not one of these things is going to solve a problem for you. It's a combination and correct timing. And if we target them really well and at the right time of the year, particularly when we're talking about these early stresses, I think that's when we can see a benefit from these kind of technologies. We need to be reducing the stress through this May period, and we can use these technologies to do it because the damage from of our fractose is on the horizon but the stresses that are causing that weak plant that's susceptible to that infection, they're happening now. And the pressures are so high on an intensively managed fine turf surface that is under relentless levels of play that we do, you know, marginal gains are important to us. Um, but a lot of these, a lot of these technologies are, are not about generating a strong response. They're about trying to, um, uh, slow down a deterioration. Um, and then, you know, I think we've got a lot more work to do in this area, but it certainly is interesting because the one thing we know about golf green maintenance is that stress is a huge influencing factor. And, um, and, and we, we need to get better at sort of managing it. We're not looking for get out of jail free cars. We don't want to adv- uh, you know, abdicate responsibility and just kind of carry on managing the green, green greens regardless and, and hope that these technologies will sort of help out in some way. You know, we, we do have to sort of consider everything. But, but these technologies are interesting and, um, and something that we should be thinking about. You know, we're just trying to get in front of the game, aren't we? So, look, we will probably return to this subject nearer the time when anthrax nose becomes more active um, but at this stage like you say we're trying to prevent it from happening and there is a lot that we can do we've talked about nutrition we've talked about mowing we've talked about general surface preparation but also those additional technologies that can be deployed at this time of year with a preventative mentality going on, with the knowledge that, you know, we're trying to protect the green, the greens from suffering at a later date. You know, we just, we just don't want problems to arise in the future. We're essentially, Glenn, we're trying to sit on that horizon and put those plans in place, in this case, to prevent anthracnose from occurring during the summer and really ruining things. But, you know, to go back to the original point, we wouldn't generally expect to see huge levels of anthracnose occurring at the moment. And we would not be expecting to employ fungicide technologies. But it is important that we 
don't become complacent either. We should never say never, of course, because we can get extreme weather conditions during May. And so anthrax nose might rear its head. But as long as we have an eye on the forecast and we're continuing to look forward onto the horizon and understand that an element of flexibility would be beneficial in our maintenance plan, in maintenance plans, especially at times when stress begins to build, then we shouldn't run into too many problems. And if the stress is do ramp up. I just don't think that we should be afraid to back off if we need to. Okay. So if I can just summarize what I think we're saying here, and and I think my conclusions from listening to yours and Andy's videos that you did, it's don't go too lean with that nitrogen. Keep it in the two to four kilograms of nitrogen a hectare per week. Research shows more N, but we think that's probably a bit unrealistic for the UK markets. Any opportunity you get to lift your cutting height, go for it. The more you can keep it closer to three and a half mil rather than two and a half mil, the better the chance you've got of coming through this period. Regular light dressings, we think, will probably help protect the crown. We know the research supports less anthracnose pressure with those light dressings, and we think it's mainly down to that crown protection. And keep your moisture appropriate. Don't let things get too droughty, too dry. And we're really not in that fungicide period yet, are we, Henry? We're not there in May. But it's something we want to keep an eye on because those stress points, those trigger points, they're not far away. That's right. And I suppose the other point that I want to make, Glenn, is referring back to your experiences, which I think are quite common, that if your greens are different in their nature, is not to be afraid to treat them differently. Um, There are ways of adjusting the nutrition that don't necessarily need to be detrimental or overly demanding. And certainly maybe later on in the piece, you might be thinking about planning for preventative fungicide application to those vulnerable greens um, is an acceptance that they are under a greater level of pressure and that they, you know, they would benefit you know, from that added level of protection. I think the important thing uh, with anthracnose is not to kid ourselves about it. You're listening to the On The Horizon with Glenn and Henry podcast. Remember, join us, subscribe, stick with us, get in touch, talk to us. We want to know what's going on. Right, Henry. We said we take a look at fairy rings as well, wouldn't we? So do you think we're likely to see some of those flaring up through May? Yes, we definitely are. Glenn, all things being equal, uh, soil temperatures will will be ideal for fungal activity and fairy ring are caused by soil-borne fungi. So we can expect them to rear their ugly heads during May. Okay. We should we should recap because it is a little bit confusing, isn't it? There are there are three different types of fairy ring that we should be aware of, and each type requires slightly different consideration. Um, but we should say they're all caused by various different types of uh, what are known as basidiomycete fungi. But it's the symptoms that give rise to the categorization of fairy rings. Um, they're all you know, roughly circular, outward-growing, soil-borne fungal growths that express different symptoms depending on their impact on the turf. 
or with the development of fruiting bodies such as mushrooms. Um, so we have type 1 fairy rings, and they exhibit areas of dead turf. Okay. Type 2 fairy rings exhibit, exhibit a green or stimulated zone, and type 3 fairy rings exhibit fruiting bodies such as mushrooms. Now, type 1 fairy rings are the most damaging to turf because they cause the grass cover to die back and this is caused by the the action of the fungi rendering affected areas water repellent it's not pathogenic um it's having an impact on the growing environment uh type 2 fairy rings uh tend to be more superficial just exhibiting an area of stimulated growth but this can be disfiguring disfiguring and it also can be a cause for concern um and it also can affect playing qualities uh especially uh, with low mowing frequencies um type 3 fairy rings can be problematic in terms of aesthetics, but also if the mushrooms are known to be poisonous, uh, which can be the case. So they also need you know, proper consideration. So I suppose the job when considering fairy rings is to ensure that undue turf damage is prevented from happening. Type 1 fairy rings are caused by hydrophobic conditions, so we would treat uh, affected areas or um, areas that are known to become affected with surfactant to try to maintain plant health if we possibly can. We might be able to maintain type 2 and 3 fairy rings with regular mowing, for instance, uh, or their impact could be diminished through fertilization if, if appropriate or with the use of pigments as well. But generally, they're not so problematic. But there are certainly instances where we will need to use fungicides to control fairy rings. For instance, um, if type 1 fairy rings are present in golf greens or close-mown turf that is deliberately being kept dry, such as in uh, a lynx situation, then type 1 fairy rings can result in a significant amount of dieback, even with the intensive use of wetting agents, for instance. And so, some fungicidal control is either appropriate or very much needed. So, you know, if we do need to use a fungicide, Glenn, you know, how do we achieve a c control? And um, is there any sort of special advice to give in terms of application or timing? Well, I think the place we start here, Henry, is a bit of expectation management. Um, what are our expectations with a fungicide on fairy ring? Do Does the industry kind of expect it to remove that ring completely, to reduce the greening? Are we expecting to eliminate the symptoms or are we just looking to make it manageable so we can get a putting surf on the putting surface? Uh, it's, a, it's a tough disease to manage and these Really, when we're looking at fungicides, they're long-term strategies and they're important to keep things under control to reduce the severity of them and kind of long-term keep their numbers to a minimum. I think we've got to be very realistic and sensible about what we can expect here. From a chemical point of view, the only fungicides with fairy ring on the label in the UK is Heritage WG and Heritage Max. Both can be used in long-term strategies to deal with fairy ring. 
Careful thought needs to be placed around the timings and best practice is to be applying them when soil temperatures range from 12 to 15 degrees, which is when that pathogen activity will just begin to commence. So it's our best opportunity to knock it over with a fungicide. Now, for most areas of the country, that's going to be somewhere around mid-April going through to the end of May. So during this May period, we're right in that optimum zone for applying fungicides to get control of fairy ring in that optimum soil temperature. Now, the further north you go, the longer it takes to go to those temperatures. So I ran a search on soil temperatures recently um, for all the county cricket clubs across the country. And interesting, I did Durham in there and they weren't reaching 15 degrees in an average year until the end of July. So another kind of regional weather variation there. So it's useful taking that advice, that 12 to 15, understanding what it means for you and just keeping a very close eye on your soil temperatures to look for those optimum ranges. Yeah, it's such a difficult target to hit, you know, being below ground that it's important that we do everything that we can to achieve effective control. So in terms of frequency of application, how many treatments do we think uh, would be necessary uh, to achieve a good level of control? Um, Well, the data supporting two applications on 14-day intervals during that product Um, with the product being watered into an appropriate depth to maximise the amount of active ingredient reaching that area of activity. Now, for me, that's where the biggest challenge lies. For each fungi, for each fairy ring, each different soil type, that's all going to be slightly different. So understanding where your problem is and where you're trying to target is going to be really helpful when you're thinking about this application and how you absolutely make the very best out of it. Okay, so so what we what we sort of looking out for then in terms of targeting the depth of our fungicide application? Um, are we taking soil cores out, and and will we be able to see the depth of the zone where that is being affected most by the fungi? Well, there's over sixty different fungi associated with this problem, Henry. So each one will manifest itself slightly differently but what i would expect to see somewhere in that soil profile is some hydrophobic really strong water repellent soil in the region where it's active so after all fairy ring isn't a disease that kills turf it's a pathogen that alters the state of the soil so the grass can't grow in it and it's where is it altering that soil in your profile Now, several fairy rings that I've taken core samples out, we could quite clearly see those hydrophobic areas in the profile by dropping water down the core that we'd pulled out. And you could see then what depth the challenge was at. Was it really deep? Was it quite shallow? Was it two inches down? It was different in all the different situations I did. Um, The other thing you could do is possibly put those soil cores in a plastic bag. And I've never done this one myself, but I've seen it done and shared on Twitter. It's quite a big practice in America. Um, And you put some moisture in that plastic bag, you zip tie it up and you put it in a nice warm environment, probably that 12 to 15 degrees that we were talking about. And you're trying to stimulate that activity in a forced environment. And depending on the type, you may well stimulate some mycelium activity. And if you could see that kind of white mycelial fluff on the core, 
you would have a really good idea and be able to absolutely nail down and identify exactly where the challenge is in your profile. But because of the variables involved here, there's no guarantees on either of those, but they're definitely worth trying to get a better picture of your challenge. The other thing I often wonder, Henry, is whether we could use a soil moisture probe to help us gauge this, you know, across the profile of the fairy ring. Could we take plugs out and then test it across the range with a soil moisture probe to understand exactly what's going on, both vertically, so down the soil core, and across the surface of the soil, you know, understand how what the moisture looks like outside that green ring, in the green ring, and just inside it. And that way, you've got a really good opportunity to fine tune your understanding of what's going on with your fairy rings and exactly know, know exactly how hydrophobic it is, how big a difference there is between the two. And that will really help you gauge your management practices to one, get fungicides into the right place and two, maintain the putting surfaces you want on top of it. Yeah, we're trying to target, aren't we? Um, identify the zone that's being affected by this soil-borne fungi and possibly maybe aerate to that depth or employ um, water rates that would be appropriate to get the fungicide to move down into that affected zone where it's required. Yeah, I think most people are aware of the high water volume concept and watering in when it comes to targeting fairy ring fungicide applications. I suspect not many people have really tried to dial that in to hit optimum targets. I guess there's a possibility in some situations we've overwatered and pushed active ingredient down below the area of activity. I guess at times we may well have spiked too deep and bypassed it too. They'd always still have a decent effect in there, but the more of that active ingredient we can target to the key areas, the better chance we've got of getting strong results on what is a really difficult and tricky disease to manage. Yes. Um, in terms of the use of wetting agents as another way of managing the moisture, we would generally be using them routinely. Uh, on type 1 fairy rings to mitigate the level of damage. But sh should we also be considering the use of, of wetting agents or surfactants at the time of application alongside the fungicide to assist the movement of the fungicide down to where it's required? Look, I think the more information we can arm ourselves with by knowing where it is in your particular soil profile, the more chance we've got of having a really effective result. Um, if we're finding that mycelium activity right at the surface, which is a possibility, then you could consider applying it without a wetting agent because that might push it down too deep. However, if it's two or three inches down, then we should definitely be looking to push the fungicide further down with higher water volumes and probably a wetting agent. Ah, great. Some good advice there, Glenn. It is something that we've always really struggled with. But by the same token, we know, especially on those link sites, that they're, they're screaming out for effective control. Um, so hopefully there's plenty to think about there, um, especially with, you know, varying activity you know, kicking off in May, potentially. So we have different types. We have different levels of damage, each requiring a different strategy to prevent them from uh, uh, affecting the playing surfaces. There, there is a lot. To yeah, the, the type one, type two, type three label has frustrated me for a number of years as 
as I simply just didn't get it. I thought I was being a bit slow on the uptake, if I'm honest, and I probably just pretended I knew what I was talking about to get through various qualifications that I did. I, I used to do that a lot. Uh, the more I look at it now, the more I understand that they're, they're just simply labels for symptoms, almost a scale of how big a problem it is for you on that site and the damage being done. The, the damage being done, though, is not to the grass plant. This isn't a disease of the plant. This isn't a disease that kills turf. This is a disease that alters the soil structure. And in turn, that soil structure makes it difficult for grass to grow in. So when we're thinking about fairy ring management, I've really changed my mindset. And I'm now thinking about soil management and understanding that this is a fungal pathogen that is adjusting the soil profile. Rather than thinking about protecting the plant from a disease, I'm now thinking about how can we restructure that soil so it's suitable for grass to grow in. And when I'm thinking about fungicide strategies, I'm thinking about how do I stop this pathogen from making the soil unsuitable for plant growth? It just needed a bit of different framing in my mind to get to the point now where I'm quite clear on it. Um, certainly changed my mindset from where I was a while back. And I'm, I'm sure my mindset will continue to evolve the more I learn on this because it is a massive, massive subject. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more, Glenn. Look, we've spoken quite a bit about fairy ring hair, Henry. Um, I just wonder whether we've spoken enough about what you have to do if you're seeing them in May. After all, that's what we are talking about here. These frustrating green rings that pop up. We know fungicides are a long-term strategy, but what can we do about this now? What What are our curative options with yeah, it's interesting that, Glenn, actually, to, to sort of bring it back to, you know, the realities of the situation. The, the, the picture I have in mind when you mention seeing type two fairy rings in golf greens at this time, and they might be more superficial in their nature. As an agronomist, I would be thinking that maybe the fertility levels might be a bit low and the fact that you can see these stimulated areas of growth might be indicated indicating that the greens are being run a little bit too lean. So we could rectify the situation possibly by tweaking the fertility slightly. And remember that we need to remember that if we push too hard on top of type one and type two fairings, we might also be starting to sort of create more of a problem by causing areas to die back. And so if we're seeing a lot of type two rings, we, we might be thinking about just adjusting our maintenance intensity slightly? Yeah, yeah, there's some very visible fairy rings in some putting surfaces around the country. And there are some golf clubs that are very tolerant of that. They really don't mind. They don't affect the putting surface. Generally, those kind of clubs, they're running putting surfaces quite lean and that gives them the surfaces they want. And the fairy rings are very superficial and not impacting anything. And if your members are tolerant of that, then, then why change it? But, but do keep an eye on those soil profiles. Keep an eye on your moisture levels. Remember, you're trying to manage a soil that turf wants to grow in and fairy rings are trying to alter that. So stay in control of it. It's certainly a signal that something could change quickly on you. But there's lots of situations similar to that, but slightly different where you'll get flack from the membership over it. And I've seen that in some memberships, really worried about this kind of thing. 
And in that situation, nutrition is probably your way to go, masking or hiding it until your fungicide strategy can get a grip. And for me as an agronomist, you know, obviously I'd be looking at each individual situation to see whether, you know, this is something that's signaling to me as an as an agronomic indicator. Um, it may be that the presence of the fairing activity would not be a cause for concern, that it would simply be superficial. But there's, there's lots of times when I remember seeing this kind of acti- activity that it would be um, maybe more of an indication that things were slightly out of balance. Uh, and that could be fertility or moisture management or organic matter management that needs adjusting. It might, it might, you know, they might be telling you that you should be focusing on the, ma- the maintenance program in a slightly different way. You know, it can be an agronomic indicator, but you would need to, um, you know, to judge that whole possibility as part of the complete assessment rather than taking it on its own yeah i think there's one point i'd like to finish on with this um if you do have high levels of fairy ring activity don't let things dry too much because whilst you can manage those slightly hydrophobic conditions with a good wetting agent program and good soil moisture monitoring, getting them back once they've gone hydrophobic is the real challenge and very, very difficult. And and one I probably try and stay well away from if I possibly could, because it just creates a knock-on effect down the line, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So so look, if we're if we're if we're finishing off on fairings, this is not an issue that would affect everyone uh, detrimentally, but it is certainly a potentially serious issue uh, for some courses and so constant monitoring and careful management might well be needed as a top priority as always turf management is a tricking subject Now then, Henry, we were talking earlier, and I think you rightly identified that May is the month when putting surfaces will come together nicely, and then it's likely we're going to see some seed heads pop up and ruin it for everyone. (laughs) Yes, shouldn't laugh. Um, The development of annual meadowgrass seed heads can be a real kick in the teeth for the course manager, you know, who spent the last couple of months getting everything perfect only for playing qualities to deteriorate as a result of the production of these seed heads. Um, it's yet another one of the scourges of annual metagrass dominance, um, you know, along with its lack of stress tolerance, its lack of disease tolerance, or lack of substantial root systems, um, the seed head production is another one of those things that we have to deal with. And as I mentioned earlier, it seems to happen at the first sign of stress. Annual metagrass or poa annua is, as a plant, not particularly well adapted to cope with extreme drought or heat stress. And so when the first signs of stress, either temperatures or prolonged spells of dry weather or even that desiccating desiccating wind during spring or early summer hits the system, then the first thing that annual metagrass does is to pop out those seed heads, which can not only cause a significant reduction in turf quality in, term, in visual terms, but it can also really 
adversely affect those playing qualities of the surface, making them more uneven and slower as a result. Um, Glenn, you must have experienced this in your time as a course manager. What was it like to be on the receiving end of annual Medegrass seed head production? Frustrating, difficult, annoying. There's plenty of adjectives to describe it. Um, I think the thing is with seed heads is you always knew they were going to come. Um, it was a very rare situation if you were managing putting surfaces with no pole annua. doesn't happen very often in the UK. You've usually got some in your green somewhere. Um, there was always going to be a percentage of power in there. So you knew seed was going to come and you could manage it. Honestly, I think the putting surfaces, I don't think they were really hindered by the seed heads when you had a high percentage of power. It was more of a visual thing. It would kind of it would get in the golfers' heads a bit more than actually impact their their kind of the way the ball rolled. But that's if you had consistent power across your greens. Um, in that situation, golfers could easily confuse it for kind of poor cutting quality or something along those lines. And you could mask it up a bit, uh, use a bit of iron and maybe now use pigments. Um but it was the clubs that had the newer constructed greens that had more of a challenge. So when you kind of started off with a creeping bent or a brown top fescue mix, and then you had early power starting to establish into it that really hadn't distributed itself very well. And they were the ones that I really struggled to maintain putting surfaces on. We went through a horrible phase when I worked at a big club in Kent for a number of years. We had creeping bent greens and we went through that whole period of power taking over. And I found myself wishing for more power in the end. So at least I could have a consistent putting surface. And this May period we were talking about was always when we'd have our first big golfing event on TV. We'd always have something. It was just horrible. The challenges of power seeding at those high-profile venues is really well-documented, and it's very difficult time to present things visually nicely, aesthetically pleasing, and if you haven't got it consistently through your greens, it can really impact the putting surface. But there's a number of tricks we can use to get through it. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll, well, we'll move on to that. But firstly, is there anything in the research that would be helpful here in terms of understanding when it's going to happen or how best to mitigate? Uh, yeah, there's a bit out there. I've had a little dig around on this. Um, and there's one fully researched model out there that I found of uh, Dr. Danneberger and Dr. Vargas put together in the 80s. Uh, looking at growth degree days. I think it was Danneberger's first venture into growth degree days. And it's a really simple model, if I'm honest, looking at what we're used to now. Um, they use the base temperature of 10 degrees and 60 growth degree days after that when they saw their first power seed heads. Now, if we break that down to what that really means, because we're using that 10 degree base temperature that really is average temperature minus 10. So you've got to be moving into some very consistent temperatures above 10 to start seeing some seed heads. And once you start seeing that consistently and we get up to around 60, then that's when they suspect we'll start seeing. Now, I've plugged that data into a model, into some historic data. Um, and I've had a look at STRI because I was doing some, we've got a project going on there. and It was just something I looked at. And over the last five years, 
that date has kind of fallen between the last week of April and the end of May. So it really is this May period that we are going to be seeing seed heads throughout impacting our surfaces. Okay, yeah. So that's a slightly different take than than, than my view. Uh, but you know, you know that I think that um, stress is the driver here. Might be wrong. Wouldn't be the first time. Um, but uh, you know, stress mitigation I think can help to a certain degree here. Um, but there's certainly no magical cure, is there? Um, I did do a fertilizer trial, uh, a spring fertilizer trial, a, a few years ago, and I did see a significant reduction in seed head production on plots that had that had received an increased level of potassium. But it certainly didn't reduce it to what you'd call an acceptable level it was just something that you kind of noticed you know i scored it in quite a simplistic way and then got on with my life um but you know there was still heavy annual metagrass seed head uh, production in you know even in the very best plots but it was interesting so you know stress mitigation did seem to help you know with potassium being involved in that process but the trial wasn't really looking into that and so it's probably just my convenient interpretation of the situation to justify the preconceived notions that i hold on this situation yeah i, I think you're right avoiding stress is the key to reducing them I, I suspect there is some kind of phototropic reaction within power annual that once it reaches certain day lengths and certain temperatures that it triggers that kind of seed head um, process but uh, i also think the more stress there is the more the plant is going to want to seed um, and we've highlighted here that if you've got seed heads, you're going to want to manage a putting surface on top of those, whatever. So it doesn't matter when you've got them. Stress is not going to make things any better. So the tools we've got to create better putting surfaces during that period, the irony here is they're probably imposing even more stress. So if we're looking to brush to improve the surface, to groom to improve the surface, verticut, all of those things will one, improve the putting surface in a difficult period, but they'll also create more stresses to a plant that is going to see more during a stress period. So we've got a load of tools in our armory to get us through this difficult period, but they all contribute to the problem as well. Absolutely. And and this is why May is such a difficult time, isn't it? Um, we're having to deal with stress at a time when the maintenance program might be at its most intense but when growth is yet to fully establish um, or where it might be intermittently being held back as a result of lower temperatures so it's such a difficult time and then we've got these kind of annual metagross seed heads popping up and we and you know the 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 solution to it is to increase the intensity of maintenance it's such a difficult time yeah, let's not get too depressed, but we should talk about in on you know staying on this issue issue of annual metagrass seed head production. We do need to talk about how if plant growth regulators can help, um, not only just in terms of uh, being one of the things that we can use that that has stress mitigation properties, but also it'd be nice to sort of know whether Primo Max, for instance, could help you know mitigate the uh, impacts of annual metagrass seed heads being produced. 
Um, is there anything to be learned here, Glenn? Uh, yeah, we could certainly use Primo Max to regulate growth and tighten down that sward and keep those seed heads lower in their combs so they have less of an impact on the putting surface. There is some research data to support Tranex Pack E4, which is the active ingredient in Primo Max in reducing seed heads as well. But it's a tiny amount of seed head suppression and not enough that we would even suggest putting it on the label or recommend for it to be being used that way. You, you wouldn't tease that data out with anything other than digital analysis. Um, so we would never pick it up by eye. So I'm not sure recommending plant growth regulators as seed head suppression tools in the UK is a particularly strong strategy. Uh, but they can certainly be used to help create a better surface. I think you've got some other options as well. I think you could look to pigment technology to mitigate the stress and then mask that color differentiation of a weak looking sword. I would definitely be looking to rider now um, if I was a turf manager again. And you you can kind of pull those strategies in tighter and tighter. You can certainly look to iron to do a similar thing as well. And when you start looking at things like that fortnightly mix, Henry, that we've worked together with your Vitanova Stress Buster in there, Calibra to help with kind of consistent moisture, Rider, Primo, and you pull those in on that fortnightly spray interval that we look at and we work with. It was a really good piece of work, the trial that we did and that evolved out of. So when we started Kind of looking at that as a project, I don't think I realised how useful it could be in this project. So, look, when we started this episode, this podcast about May, I really didn't think we'd be talking about this much stress. Um, it feels to me to be much too early to be worrying about stress in May. The stress comes in June when the temperatures consistently get up. But I'm wondering on reflection if we go into it sooner than if I ever realised, but we're just getting away with it in May more than we do in June. I think that's right, Glenn. I think it is an eye-opening uh, uh, period to look into. Uh, and certainly when you look at that climatic data and also when we refer back to our experiences, May is actually more often than not a very stressful time. And I think one of the reasons why we might stumble into problems at this time or build problems, you know, as a result of our sort of management at this time is because that's not high on our radar, as you were just saying. I, I, I think we all think that it's too soon, that we're not yet even through spring yet. And so, you know, we're not thinking of our full stress mitigation strategies when we, sh when we absolutely should be. May is the time that we really do need to be thinking more towards that horizon. Um, and maybe if we can think that we need to adopt our stress, summer stress management strategies um, a little bit earlier, and possibly have the confidence to back off a little bit if we need to with our surface preparations, just for short periods, uh, then we might be able to navigate this May period a, a little better. I think in the past, like you, actually, I don't think that I realised that May was such a pivotal month routinely. You know, it's not exceptional Mays that we're talking about. I th you know, we're just it, at that time when stress begins to build and we're pushing 
so hard it's it's such a difficult time glenn isn't it yeah i think the thing that jumps out at me is we're not in full growth yet we can have both extremes of temperature still we're we're high temperatures and we've got low temperatures and we're having to work those surfaces harder than we would normally because the expectation is so high it's no wonder that we kind of get caught out but we don't get caught out in May because we've still got those overnight temperatures that allow us to get away with what could be classed as bad practices for plant health. Uh, we just get away with those stresses because there's not something to really highlight them. I, I think that's right, definitely. But, you know, because the consequences of this heady mix at this time of year might not be immediately apparent, we might not be registering that. Uh, that our problems that we're encountering later on in the summer were firmly rooted uh, in what we were doing at this time in May. Look, we're getting anthracnose in June and July. We should be looking back, or we certainly shouldn't be forgetting, that this might be a direct consequence of how we were handling the, the greens during this period. I think it's a great place to start this on the horizon podcast don't you because there's an awful lot that, that of things that could be developing just over the horizon in may that can cause us you know serious problems at a later date and i didn't think it'd be possible whilst putting a podcast together to actually hear people screaming at me though henry because i can hear course managers screaming now you've forgotten what it's like kirby three years out of the game you've forgotten already we've got golfers and a membership expectation so you talk about relieving stress is all very well but my putting surfaces may well be healthy but i'll be looking for another job so I can just hear him telling me that now. Uh, people are going to be pushing surfaces through this period, Henry, because they want to keep those surfaces pristine. Their members have come to expect it. This year, particularly, their members haven't had a chance to play anything else. They're just desperate for good greens to be playing on. I think there's a few key watch points for me that they can take out of this. Though, that have been running throughout this whole theme of May. Don't let things get too dry. Don't let things get too lean. Only work them as hard as you need to to get that putting surface. Don't overwork them. And there's a number of technologies available to you to help mitigate this stress that's going on in this May period. Recognize there are a number of compromises that you are making to that plant health and understand how you can implement those technologies to help you out during this period. Absolutely right, Glenn. And I'm not saying, hopefully, that we should back off in the sense of not preparing high-quality surfaces. I just think that we should be backing off in terms of maybe easing up slightly and de deploying other methods, possibly to take up the slack, such as top dressing, rolling and everything else that we talked about. You know, there's one, more than one way to prepare a surface. And I think an over-reliance on overly close mowing at this time of year as the only way of creating or the main way of creating fast putting surfaces might not be the best way to, to proceed. But then again... I'm not a course manager with the pressure of expectation weighing down on my shoulders every minute of every day through this period. So I understand, but I just don't think that the green suffering in June and July 
is also doing anyone any good either. It's just such a difficult time. Okay, so that's what's on the horizon in May then. Uh, We'll be back next month to take a look at June when conditions, no doubt, will step up another notch to the next level. Yeah, thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you. So get in touch with me at Glenn, that's G-L-E-N-N dot Kirby at Syngenta.com, Henry Leave him alone. Don't pester him on his email address. Pester me, no problem. And of course, subscribe to the podcast. It's the first one we've done. We'd love to get your feedback on it. Um, But if you subscribe, you'll be notified the moment the next episode is available. Yes, and just before we finish, I think i really like to to dedicate this episode um, to a true turf professional and an ultimate enthusiast who passed recently. Um, Bill Johnson was a, a teacher and a turf researcher over at WSU in the States. And I got to know Bill when he was over on a research sabbatical at the STRI in the late 2000s. And he stayed um, in touch with our family ever since. So Bill was a great man and he was a, a true gent. And anyone who knew him will miss him greatly and he will remain an inspiration, I think, to us all. Okay, so that's it for this month. Good luck out there and hopefully see you next time. All the best. <laughs>